0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I'm thinking about how there are two sources within us for how we act in the world, how we react in the world, respond in the world, And one is more what I consider more on the surface, and one is from our depths, someplace deep inside. And the surface, I I associate with responding, reacting to the world. When the events of the world come to us and it, it meets our fear or our anger, or despair, or hopelessness, or greed. And all those things I think of more surface, partly because they usually involve a lot of thinking, imagination of ideas and desires, and they also um, are in a more activated state. The depths within us is to allow something deeper inside of us to respond, to be touched by the world that's, that is uh, that is deeper than whatever fear and despair, anger we might have. Maybe when those things, the, the fear and anger, despair, have settled and quieted, greed has settled away, enough so that we feel a sense of satisfaction and And warmth and pleasure and happiness in life, uh, in a deeper way, without needing the world to be a certain way, where we feel at ease and feel at home in a deep way. And so there's a different sensitivity that we, in which we receive the world, the difficulties, that other things that are, I think, deeper inside and maybe easily eclipsed by the surface can emerge. And rather than reacting, we respond. Rather than rea- reacting, we, uh, we, something emerges from the heart, emerges from deeper, d- deeper inside that where we can sh- we feel our shared humanity, where we can feel and see other people for their humanity, that's very hard to see if we're reacting from the surface, if we're seeing through the fear, through hate, through greed, through despair, through a sense of hopelessness, helplessness. And so to be able to kind of Tap into some deeper place within is a hugely important part of meditation, Buddhist practice, and some of the guidelines for how to live a life that the Buddha gives make a lot of sense. Or there is a lot of there is they, 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 they resonates much deeper inside of us. If. Uh, uh, if we're re- in, in touch to this, in, in touch with this depth inside of us, so one of the guidelines, one of the kind of precepts of Buddhism, one maybe the first precept, is not to kill. And uh, and uh, the kind of the primary principle associated to that, and the principle that underlies all of Buddhism, I believe, is. Um, not to harm, the principle of non-harming, living a life of non-harming. And I want to talk about this a little bit today because of, of recent events. You know, it seems like two, uh, you know, two weeks ago we had this horrific shooting in in Buffalo at a market called Tom's Friendly Market. And ten black Americans were shot just shopping and that that was the motivation for the talk last week on on hate it was a hate crime and uh, and then just five days ago we had this uh, horrendous another horrendous shooting of children 19 children and others were killed in Texas and uh And, you know, we've had a lot of shootings, school shootings in this country. And so what happens when these kinds of events are allowed to touch something deep inside? Is there a place that's deeper than anger? Deeper than fear? Deeper than despair? Deeper than... than uh, Is there some place deeper? not to dismiss those reactions and those responses because they're so human, so uh, you know, so, so much of how people respond to things. But what happens? Do we have access to someplace deeper? And I think that's the call, one of the calls of Buddhist practice. Because of the first precept and this first principle of not killing and not harming, to the, the call of Buddhists is to see how can we come from that place? How can we be dedicated and committed to non-harming in a radical way, in a thorough way? How can we be champions of not killing, not just not killing ourselves? Because the Buddha also taught that, or um, uh, encouraged, more than just not harming, not killing, but advocating for others not to kill as well, or inspiring others not to kill, to cultivate maybe a culture of not killing. And so how do we you know, change this hum- tremendous momentum of a culture that has so much, you know, has so much momentum in violence, in killing. After the killings in Texas, there was in the news uh, reports of, uh, that the manufacturer of the gun that was used, the company called uh, Daniel Defense, they had a uh, advertisement which I then found on their website of a what you can't see the face but uh, clearly a young child is my guess is a four or five years old with a semi automatic rifle on his lap and uh and uh you know, just resting there. And he has a t-shirt that says Rascal on it that seems to diminish or kind of make light of or kind of suggest something very different about what it means to own or possess a, and a semi-automatic rifle. But then even more remarkable is the statement that goes along with the, that's, you know, together with the advertisement. Train up a child in the way he should go. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Start them early with semi-automatic rifles. So here's a company, a business, trying to promote the sale of their rifles. So this is not necessarily, I don't know if they're operating out of some kind of strange idea of compassion for our society, but it seems to me like they're operating under uh, wanting to make business, wanting to sell, and trying to hook people in. And so the momentum of some of the economic forces in the society that's advertising a culture of of violence. How do we do something different? Where does that come from? So in the the description of the first precept, the kind of the little bit longer description of it, one abstains from killing, one lays down weapons and swords Uh, modest, compassionate dwelling uh, with care for the welfare of all beings. So it isn't just killing. There's more that's involved with, much more that's involved. And these are beautiful qualities. I'm inspired by some people who put down their weapons, throw them away, For me, uh, that creates a different culture. A culture of people who are not going to succumb to fear, greed, or conceit, or arrogance. And one of the worst ways of, uh, I think, of responding to the violence in the world is to allow the fear that it elicits to get the upper hand. In such a way that we go out and buy another gun. Then we just kind of perpetuate more. There is a uh, story from Japan, or a historical event. Maybe it's slightly interpretive the way I'm going to present it to you. But uh, in the, somewhere, I don't know when, in the, the fifth, sixth century in, in Japan, uh, they were in the in the valley in the valley that's surrounded by mountains. That's now Kyoto. They were building Buddhist temples, and there was a capital. and uh, And there was this um, idea that evil spirits forces would be coming out of uh, the northeast corner of that valley, down the mountains, and somehow come and harm the capital. So to protect the capital, they built a Buddhist temple up there in the northeast, kind of like, and they would do rituals and practices and somehow have the dharmic protection. And that monastery grew and developed to be one of the biggest monasteries in Japan over the centuries at some point, they became so big, it became like, i going to probably also like a landlord, land, you know, like a big estate. And, and um, they had uh, some kind of monks, I don't know exactly what kind of monks they were, who were soldiers. And at some point, that was the evil force that came out of the northeast down to Kyoto, to attack Kyoto, to take over, to... to so it was a it was a self fulfilling prophecy <laughs> that uh, there's danger. Let's protect us with the and let's have monks up there who can arm themselves and be soldiers. And and it became so powerful that that came around. So it's a kind of a you know I don't know if we want to take too much of a lesson from that, but it's certainly an example of uh, sometimes uh, living with fear and. Uh, off, you know, in kind of re- in a reactive mode can elicit the very thing that we're trying to avoid. A more contemporary statement of this is, uh, saying, I, I, what I'm trying to say here today is from Martin Luther King. The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So, I don't know, you know, there's all kinds of things being said now and in, uh, almost every time there's some mass shooting like this. Many of the same things get said about what should happen and analysis of our culture and our society and it's 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 kind of a kind of it's very sad to kind of think that here we're saying the same thing over the repetition of this is kind of phenomenal so i don't want to repeat some of the cultural ideas societal ideas that are so common they said but i i do feel inspired to evoke The importance of non harming and not killing in a Buddhist life. And that learning how to do this in a wise way, learning how to do this so that we can protect ourselves better that way than we can through violence. It's not an obvious and easy thing to naively say, you know, we should be non violent. When there are dangers in this world, it doesn't work. But are there ways, resources, that we can do to prepare ourselves and have other responses that come out of our compassion that help us be safe, help us live well, help us not perpetuate fear, not perpetuate fear, uh, despair, or a sense of hopelessness with all this, and one of the reasons why to do this is to uh is to uh radiate from ourselves, hopefully, a cultural change. So much of what's this uh you know, the the, the roots of violence in this country as we see, some of it comes from hate. Some of it, like with this uh, last one in the school shooting in Texas, uh, this 18-year-old who committed this horrendous <coughs> killings, um, he was bullied. Apparently he had a stutter and a lisp and other things, and he had a mother who was a drug addict, and and he probably had a very difficult life. You know, and bullying is horrible. Especially if you're already at home, have had a difficult life and no place of refuge. So the the movements of bullying is not something to be taken lightly. I've had parents that tell me that they went to the school to try to deal with the bullying of their child at school and, and the principals were not that interested in doing anything. But look, you know, we have to respond, but how do we respond Kindly. what happens we've had uh, uh correctional systems that uh you know put people in jail and they become worse in jail than they were when they before they went in because of how terribly and disrespectfully they're treated we don't call it bullying by the guards but uh, the guards can treat people horrendously I met a man when I was in San Quentin who had spent 24 years in solitary confinement. Can you believe that That's possible in this in, in California, in a state prison, 24 years. And uh, and so you know to perpetuate and and the very system that's supposed to be a correctional system doesn't correct; it makes things worse. So to. Um, uh, But what do we do? And what we do as Buddhists, among the many things you can do, but it's to really appreciate and find a way to love, certainly others, but love nonviolence. Love not causing harm. Love it because it protects you. It protects the best that's in you. That protects something that's wonderful and beautiful and rich and and um, satisfying and and worth worth coming from a way of, that provides a meaningful life that doesn't depend on things which are relatively superficial, but comes in like from a heart that's full and and satisfied or delighted and rich and to do this practice, not just to restrain from love, restrain from killing, but as the rest of the teaching goes, uh, to be some kind of modesty, not clear exactly what that is, but some kind of modesty, compassion, and care for the welfare of everyone. The, uh, it's interesting that the, uh, the Buddhas um, presented kind of an analysis of how rulers can care for people. It's an ancient myth that the Buddha kind of, maybe he invented it, he, he, just, he composed it. But it involved uh, the decay of society when the rulers do not care for everyone equally. And this is such an important idea that everyone should be get, uh, treated equally. Everyone should be given the same opportunities. And it's the role of the government to make sure that, that happens. And the way that this myth goes is that um, uh, there were Whole series of kings, uh, hereditary kings who were born and ruled for many years, and uh, and the custom was they would always go when they first became king, and get advice from uh, wise people, from wise religious people and others, and the and the teachings that they received was um, was to live um, to live by the Dharma, and. And one of the ways that the Dharma means outside of Buddhism, which is the meaning here, it means just justice. To live, or, or to live, to, to rule justly, to rule fairly, which I interpret to mean um, uh, treating everyone equally, giving everyone equal opportunities, which uh, is still not the case in this country. And... Uh, The passage goes like this. So these wise people would tell the king, yourself depending on the Dhamma, honoring it, revering it, cherishing it and doing homage to it and venerating it, have Dhamma as your badge and banner. Acknowledging the Dhamma as your master, you should establish, guard, ward, and protect um, everyone. Your household, your troops, your people. The, everyone's on a long list, including animals and birds. The first task of uh, the rulers is to protect everyone. But this thing about the Dhamma, Dharma, is um, it's not doesn't doesn't this, in this context it doesn't mean Buddhism, but it means kind of a natural law. It means justice. It means fair fairness and um, fairness. It's um, uh, and so the 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 king is supposed to rule based on dhamma, not on their own wishes, their own desires. You'll see this becomes important later. Uh, let no Uh, uh, non-dharma prevail in your kingdom. Non-dharma means injustice here in all the different ways that can mean. Let no injustice prevail in your kingdom. And to those who have nothing, provide them. For those who don't have anything, provide for them. Provide for them property, probably so that they can take care of themselves and whatever religious people there are in your kingdom who have renounced the life of sensual infatuation and are devoted to forbearance and gentleness, each one taming themselves, each one calming themselves, and each one striving to the end of craving, if from time to time they should come to you and consult you as to... Uh, at to the time, they should come to you and consult you as to what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. In other words, take advice from some of the people who do a lot of practice and have a whole different set of values. Uh, don't consult with the people who manufacture assault rifles. <laughs> consult with the Dalai Lama. Um... Uh, And, uh, and and who can teach you those things that will, uh, will in the long run uh, lead to welfare and happiness, not to harm and sorrow. You should listen to them. So this is the advice that king got, and so for many generations that's what they did, until one king kind of forgot to do that, forgot to consult with, when he be first became king, but finally, the ministers came and got him and said, "You have to listen to this." So he heard this this advice, and so he did. Start set up uh, to guard and protect others. However, he did not care for the people who are in need. The people who had no property uh, and did the way of taking care of themselves, he didn't provide them with property so they could. And uh, and as a result. Poverty became rife. With the spread of poverty, a person took what was not given, thus committing what was called theft. The king arrested them, the person, and after a little short trial, the person admitted to having stolen, uh, the king gave him some property. Here, take care of yourself and your family this way. But the other people who were poor thought, wow, that's all I have to do is steal and then I'll get... So there's uh, stealing began. And and the king very quickly said, wait a minute. This doesn't work. The people keep stealing. So instead, he he killed them. And uh, punished them. And with punishment like that, then the people took up uh, weapons themselves. And with weapons themselves, they started killing each other and other people. And so violence spread through the realm. And things, society, deteriorated dramatically. So this is a kind of a mythic story of origin. But the origin here, the mythic story begins, this, that, that decay of society begins when those who are ruling are not treating everyone equally, not giving everyone equal opportunity through property and something to to live and have a successful life. And so people become poor. And, of course, when they're starving, they steal. And when they steal, then I said, of course, that you... It sounds like it be- began with a good idea to give them something. But it was already too late. And it set up a very strange dynamic where... People, other people started st- st- out to steal, and then violence and all that. So the spiral of violence, violence begets violence, as Martin Luther King said. Nonviolence, does it beget non-violence? Non-harming? does it beget non-harming? I'm sure you could find ex- situations where that, that's not the case. I'm sure you can find examples of where violence does not not beget violence. But the tendency is that non-violence begets non-violence. That non-violence comes from this deeper place inside, can come from this deeper place inside, not from fear, non-violence out of fear doesn't really work either. But can we find a place within, can we clarify our hearts enough so that we're in touch with something that's an inner wealth, an inner place of peace and satisfaction and inspiration, where we feel we've resolved our wounds, resolved our conflicts, resolved our, our fears and despairs, It's possible to resolve them, it's possible to settle. We should not succumb to the belief that how we see the world through fear, how we see the world through despair and anger, how we see the world through greed or hatred, gives us an accurate view of what the world is like. It doesn't. So if we think that it's accurate, then we will only perpetuate that very view. It supports that view, strengthens it, but it's not accurate. Does the view of the world through love and compassion, is that a more accurate view? It doesn't have to be. That has its own problems sometimes especially if it's enforced, like a surface thing, like I'm supposed to do this. Where I think it really makes a huge difference is doing something like meditation that allows all the shoulds and all the kind of, even like a lot of the structures of our thinking to get quiet and peaceful, to resolve the challenges of our hearts to get quiet in the heart, or peaceful in the heart, so that when, the, when we encounter the world, we're encountering it from this place inside, where something resonates, something different can happen. I don't, know what, what all, I don't know all the different ways we'll respond from the heart, but it'll be much healthier than responding from the surface, the reactive way. And so this, this to be inspired by the horrendous things that go on in our society, to change society, to find ways to promote non-harming in our society is one of the great tasks of a life. But before we can do that, I think, to really do the work in ourselves, to find a way to be an exemplar of a life that's motivated by non-fear, by non-hatred, by non-despair, non-greed, so that the most, the most, uh, the most wondrous qualities of our heart have a chance to be shared in the world that we live in. It's heartbreaking to have all this hatred and despair and anger and violence that goes on in this country. But in that heartbreak, don't despair. Use it as a, as a powerful catalyst, encouragement to do your work, to do your practice, to resolve the issues of your heart so that your heart can come forth in beautiful response to what this world needs and a response that's clearly and obviously one that never will harm anyone. Let's live in a world where non-harming is understood to be a, a, one of the greatest gifts we can we can give. So thank you.